Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. And Richard, Richard Blanco, who's with us, just so you all know, I mean, you're going to get to know Richard in this hour, but Richard has had one of those once in a lifetime, crazy, like winning the lottery, like the greatest thing happened to you that I want to hear what happened when you heard this thing happen to you, which is that he was selected by President Obama as the fifth presidential inaugural poet in history. Not only that, I'm, you're the youngest, you're the first Latinx poet, and you're the first gay person to serve in a role like that. So to me, that's, I mean, I want we're going to go back and hear your whole trajectory because you have a very interesting life with, you know, I, as, as we would say in Hollywood, you're a multi-hyphenate because you've done <laughs> so many things and you have a very serious other career. Um, so we're going to we're going to unpack the whole story. But I have to start from that moment, because who the heck gets called? I remember I had met you 20 some years ago and I just thought you were fabulous and you had written a book, but you had a complete other career at that point. And and I loved your book. And we're going to talk about that. And then I saw you on the at the inauguration and I go, what the heck? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it was like, I was like freaking out for you. So when you got the call, because we don't get to meet a lot of people that get these once in a lifetime calls. When you, I know that being a poet is not an easy career choice, right? You don't necessarily think you're going to get rich from that or, right? <laughs> you get that damn call. I mean, tell us what that felt like. The call, I'll tell you. <laughs> First of all, thank you for for having me. And uh, so, yeah, the call. Um, gosh, talk about something completely unexpected, and yet in some weird way expected. So, I won't give you too much of the backstory. But a few months before, I had sort of a, uh, I had had sort of, um, I, I say, I re I renewed my vows with my commitment to my poetry and my career. And it was it was a recommitment, but also letting go. And I I went, you know, I I was I said I'm just going to try to do this, earn a living just on writing. And, and there's other circumstances that we'll get to about that. But I was driving on 495 in Massachusetts. I get this call. Uh, you're not supposed to pick up the cell phone in Massachusetts, but this, of course there was a traffic jam. I think it's a joke. I think it's a practical joke. I'm like, what do you? The last thing, like the last thing that the White House is calling in, right? And so um, it took me a while to get to get what the person was saying. And finally, she said, uh, like Robert Frost and Maya Angelou. I was like, oh, my God. Wait a minute. Okay, now I know what this is about. But my reaction uh, really surprised my surprised even me. Um, I, you know, I, before I started worrying about having to write three poems in three weeks for the White House, I just started bawling and had to pull over the road. And this immense sense of gratitude um, 
not because of this great honor, but rather all the choices my parents and my grandparents made, their belief in education, all these sacrifice coming to this country. And I suddenly realized, you know, that we think we're born in, you know, we think we always create our own story, but a lot of our story is already starting to be written by the choices our, our, our parents and ancestors make. There's this immense sense of gratitude for my family and realizing that okay, now this is, from here on, this is my story that I have to finish and pass on to someone else. It was just this overwhelming sense of gratitude um, and, and, and just realized, but it's also one of those moments where you realize nothing will ever be the same, right? Like, and in a good way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but that surprised me because I, I thought, you know, I thought I was going to be uh, terrified or I thought I was going to be all, full of myself, <laughs> right? Um, but it, it's, it, that's what it was. And then after that, um, you know, so many, so many incredible things happened in the weeks to come, but that was my first initial, initial and reaction. Basically there at the inauguration and you're standing there with all these politicians. And also it was, it was Obama, which was like the first African-American president. When you do, when you're in that moment, do you have like an out-of-body experience? Like you're like, Oh my God. Because I've had those things happen to me, like those once in a lifetime things where you're like, you're almost out of your body looking at the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's especially true at the inauguration. So imagine there was like basically six weeks. I get the call on 12, 12, 12. On January 21st, I have to be in front of a million people in front of me and 40 million across the world. And it, but it was really the first time I was able to have a quiet moment and really take in this moment and what was happening. I took my mother, the, my mother was the one who sat right beside me, um, which was surreal as well. A woman who grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba, as I was saying, like that, that story was as much about her as me. But um, um, there's something really incredible about the inauguration when you you're in service also to something larger than yourself. Like it's bigger than the president. It's bigger than even Beyonce who sung the national anthem. You know, there there is this reverence and it is kind of an outer body experience. And, and people ask, were you nervous? I was like, well, I wouldn't say that I wasn't nervous, but I also, I just wanted to get up there and do this just for us all. Like, just like, this is, this is my gift for everyone, right? So um, it was, it still feels like an outer body experience to say it feels like it happened six months ago and it feels like it happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But one little piece of thing that Gloria Stefan said, um, she sent me a note and she said, don't run away from that moment. And she said, look, they don't only happen once in a lifetime and embrace it. And that's what I kind of did. I embraced it. But yeah, I, at that point, it wasn't even me. I think as artists, we we enter our artistic persona. Well, I think everybody does when they're doing something, when they're in flow, there was something larger than even me. I always say my poems are smarter than me. They, <laughs> they're doing all the work, you know. And I looked out over that crowd and if you see the video, I take a pause to just look at that crowd and take it in and say, yeah, this is not, this is, this is a moment. And, um, and uh, it was, it was just magical. It was just, I wasn't, you know, people think I was just like, you know, shaking, like, actually, no, um, because it is, it is, is, it's larger than you, right? It's larger than you. It's, it is like outer body. And so this is a collective communal moment for this country. Well, and, and I just, 
you know, love it because, you know, it's such a beautiful thing that, that all the stars have to align. It's like, it is like a, a small miracle. And I know, cause you've told me that to this day, you don't even know a hundred percent how it happened. Like you didn't, you didn't ask president Obama, how did you find me? Right. 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 So we don't know. It's a mystery, but I want, I really now want to go backwards because I think in this country, a lot of young people here follow your bliss and the money will come and everything will come. And I, I often think that's really like very tough to say that to people because it doesn't always come. And I want, you're a really great example of having done so much, so many other things, being so disciplined, being so or- organized, being so ready so that maybe something will come, being prepared. Right, right, right. I want to go backwards because I think you're an incredible story of really like checking all the boxes. You know, in my book, I say to people, mission and money, parallel tracks, but money comes first. Like you can't you can't just say la 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 la. I want to follow my bliss and blah blah blah. Because that's a very entitled first world thing to say. You know, I always say to women, a girl that has a beautiful voice in Afghanistan is probably never gonna go on the voice. You know what I mean? So let's unpack your backstory. You, are, like me, are a political refugee, Cuba to Spain to the United States. I know that if you told your parents when you were little, so I know it couldn't, you know, I'm going to go be a poet. You know, the parents, Cuba, <laughs> you know, but they'd be like, who do you think you are, Jose Martin? Like, you know, they would trash you. So tell us you know, kind of what you were interested in and then what you actually did, because you were good at a lot of other things. Right, right, yeah. So a couple of things about, yeah, yeah, especially, so, um, well, just to where you left off, like, if you tell, you know, my Cuban or Cuban parent, like, you're going to study English, they would say, don't you know English already? (laughs) So, you know, it's the reality, you know, of that story you're born into, like I was saying, like, I mean, we had to make very practical choices. And so, um, there were just things that were money. all our parents lost everything. They lost everything and, and, and they did their best to support us. But at the same time, you know, there was just, um, grew up with a sensibility of survival, right. Of, of just thinking about what makes practical sense and, but not letting go of your dreams either. Right. Like, so it's like, it's like kind of navigating both. So, uh, I'll give you, I'll try to make this brief. So I, I, I got a sort of preface by saying I was, I was always a left brain, right brain kid. I was one of those weirdos, like was great at math and great at art and whatnot. But my parents didn't know how to support that. And it's not that they denied it to me, but I mean, they're, the business was survival, working. And, and that was an example in and of itself, right? Like my grandmother, um, my grandmother was a bookie, you know, <laughs> but they all did this in support in some ways to help educate us. Right. Um, my uh, my mother, uh, who was a teacher in Cuba, had to work as a as a cashier and then a bank teller. Um, so, you know, they had to make choices that taught us to be practical in some ways. Right. Um, and still not let go of the dream of a happy life. So, um, but yeah, I was always a left brain, right brain kid. I, I wanted to do something creative. I didn't know what that would look like or feel like. Um, so I eventually studied engineering. Um, I loved math. I was very good at science though, right? You were really good at math and science. Yeah. I was even a little better than at English. So like, um, 
And uh, so I, I made a, not necessarily a practical, it was practical, but also I, it was something I liked, not something I hated. Because a lot of interviewers will think that the story goes like this. My parents forced me to study engineering and then I discovered poetry and the clouds parted and the cherubs came down and I became a poet. And I always, I always like to joke with them because I say, yeah, there was so much money in poetry that I was tempted to go into it full time. What are you talking about? <laughs> right? And I think people, especially in the arts, have this romantic vision of like that, you know, that it that it just falls from the sky and you know or that you don't have to work at it that you don't have to plan for it that you don't have to support it by doing something else but the reality was i i i became an engineer a practicing civil engineer um and i loved it um and and it was, engineering what exactly did you do so that they understand Oh, I'm a civil engineer. So I was involved in consulting engineering. Um, so civil engineers deal with all sorts of city planning and um, um, all sorts of municipal stuff, which ironically ended up connecting to my poetry. We can maybe talk about that later, but like how those two worlds also merged in the end and they weren't as separate as I thought. But um, serendipitously, I my work was 90%, I mean, not 90%, like, but half of my work was writing and I fell in love with language, writing reports and studies and letters and writing proposals, which as you know, for a firm, if you write a proposal, which is nothing but writing a narrative and you get a $40 million job in the house, guess who got promoted to senior engineer? <laughs> so my, I became the go-to person for anything I had to do with writing. And I thought, okay, then my right brain said, remember, you know, I, I didn't mastermind it in the sense of like, oh, I was, you know, I'm an abandoned engineering, become a poet. I just, it was a natural sort of cur following your obsessions, your creative curiosity. Poetry, because there's a lot of ways to write, as you said. What, I mean, because so many people, you know, you know, our friend Sandra Cisneros also, when we talk about her poetry, I'm like, what, what is a poem? Like, what is it that is so powerful and important about poetry? And why did that you in yeah you know i've never been like i've never desired to write like novels or short story i've written memoirs um which are you know poetry unpacked in some ways i think it's because um i'm a very impressionistic person and i see like little glimpses of life and and, and i just love capturing them almost like a painter where you just want to capture a little a little moment in life um and uh, a lot of it is like music. Uh, poetry is a lot like music, like song. It, it just, it, it's self-contained. But ultimately, I've you know, I only realized this like maybe a year ago, being bilingual all my life. And since I was like, I never remember not knowing two languages. I think when I was a young, when I was, I mean, I was translating for my parents when I was like four or five years old. And so... I think that made an impression in my head that language was power, that language was a way of not just communicating. I didn't take language for granted, but that language was a way of living, a way of breathing in the world. And as you know, once you leave Miami, my, our parents were our linguistic mercy <laughs> because they, they, they knew English, but they were afraid to speak it. And I think that light bulb went off eventually and said, I'd love language like language became my thing and poetry in particular i think you know it's so personal and it's such a great way to sort of tell your story but also in a way that connects with people 
um, because they see themselves in the poem. Um, I always say poetry is like a mirror where you see your, you know, the reader is, I'm seeing myself again in a different way. And also the readers see themselves. And it's such a, it's such a, of all the arts, it's the, it's the one that's most emotive, right? It's the one that it's like, like song again, it's like, you know, like we don't know where that hotel California is, <laughs> but we're singing along and we're like, we feel that energy, right? And poetry is a lot like that. You don't need to understand it per se. You just need to feel it. And you feel it because the poet is feeling something really authentic. And so that got me addicted to it. You know, I, I, I can't. Start doing I, it thinking. Like, I remember when, when I met you, you had written City of a Hundred Fires, which is mm-hmm. Cienfuegos, the city in, in Cuba. But, and I loved it. I thought, oh my God, this guy, like, it makes me feel like, I, like my entire Cuban childhood, I'm feeling it. But did you think it was going to be your side hustle and that you were still going to stay as an engineer? Did you really think that could ever really be a possibility for a full-time job that would pay money? Well, here's the thing. So good, because we're, we're getting on topic. <laughs> like, totally, right? Making practical choices, right? So um, I never really thought of it. It was my guilty pleasure. It was like, you know what? I'm going to do this for myself right now. I'm loving this. Um, I'm, I, and I started slowly. I took a class at a community college and then another class eventually applied for an MFA program, still working as an engineer. Cause again, I hadn't, you know, I had no other choice, right? I wasn't going to go off to Columbia or like Iowa. Um, and so. What I tell and, my woman, cause they all want to start businesses. And I go, don't leave your, your, your biz, your, your job until you've, you know, figured this thing out. Right. So, poquito a poco, como decimos, ¿no? <laughs> but with authenticity and commitment, right? So it wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to like, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm pursuing this. I'm going to be serious about it. And I, um, and so, I, you know, I always like to say like, at, at that point, you know, my lead, you know, life is a series of, you know, your life is led by a team of horses. <laughs> And at that point, the lead horse was engineering, right? Um, There's no way I could have paid for my school without, you know, my parents were going to pay my master's program without engineering. Um, So I just took it step by step. It was my side hustle. Yes, not the side hustle necessarily that was going to make money, but a side hustle in terms of a dream. And so um, little by little, I just, I, it, that grew. But here's the one thing I really want to say is like, and I tell this to my students all the time, it's very easy to let go of that vision or that dream or that side hustle, because I also set up my life so that I could financially be an engineer, but not, I mean, uh, be a poet, but also not get too wrapped up. If I had this side hustle that I was investing, investing my time and energy in, so I, I struck deals with my boss. I, I refused promotions at times to be senior partner or whatnot. I said, here's what I want to do. I want to walk 30 hours a week. You're going to pay me full benefits. I'm going to make you a shitload of money. <laughs> I don't want to manage anybody. You're going to, and because I'm doing this. Other, and they totally got it. They totally worked with me. I mean, they totally, you know, I had proven myself by this point. So the idea is like, yeah, it's, it's your side hustle, but you will, one can get very wrapped up if you're trying to move into some other place. I always, I always again, I tell my students well, like, you're, 
Don't lose hearing, sight of that vision because it's easy to lose sight of that vision. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, what I'm hearing you say is you had a plan, mm -hmm. organized, and because a lot of you know a lot of us tell each other, oh, I want to do this. I want to write a book. You know, I have a lot of uh, people that have worked for me over the years, and they're like, you wrote a book, and I I wanted to write a book more than you, and you wrote a book, and you made it a New York Times bestseller. I go, if you only knew how disciplined I had to be to write that book while I'm doing 20 other things and then reverse engineer how to make it a New York Times bestseller, right? So you, you have a very clear intention. And not just that, I know you're an engineer, so you're very organized with your time and with everything. I think I, I want you to, I want to hear about that. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that during that period in my life when I first started writing is where I really had to really like, you know, get things together and organize them because I was managing so much. Um, and I, um, I, I, I just compartment, compartment, compartmentalized everything, like slotted all my time together. Um, I was taking classes. Um, there was, there was a big plan in place, like, and, uh, I, and I did a spreadsheet, you know, like spreadsheets of like how to like planning, like when I'm going to graduate, what's this going to happen and what are the possibilities? But yeah, there was a plan in place. I mean, the plan evolves as you move along and you learn more or you reach certain goals. Um, but it wasn't willy-nilly, as they say. I wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to like be a poet. I, I really, really had to understand how to make this happen. Um, and I think that, I think again, with artists in particular, well, I think anybody, I keep on saying artists, but really, you know, it takes... It takes a work plan. It takes um, constant goal setting, constant um, reevaluation and taking inventory. Okay, I achieved this now. What's the next thing? And how do I move along in a way that makes sense and that practical sense, but also while dreaming? Um, so a lot of that, a lot of that, thank God, um, you know, came from my left brain but <laughs> to this day. But dreaming, dreaming and all that it doesn't always like manifest and you've manifested very big things. So did, what was your, like at that time when you were still an engineer and doing this, what was, what did you think was going to happen? Because I have not, you know, I didn't even know you, I mean, since there's only been five poets right. at the inauguration, you can't possibly think that's the end goal. So what did you think was going to happen? Well, I think, um, Again, I constantly reevaluate as you move up the ladder of success in poetry, right? There's like different things and then you reach for things. And I shared with you my spreadsheets, right? Yes, <laughs> so like, I do that. I, I, <laughs> I do that like every year and sort of thinking about it. And so um, part of that, um, it's incremental, right? Uh, it, it's work. Um, and you, you gain some things, you lose some things, right? There are moments where you're like have fallbacks and you have to readjust and say, okay, I didn't do this, but maybe I want to do something different. Um, I think it's just about in some ways paying attention to your life at the end of the day. All right. Like, it's just like not, not, and, and working it out step by step so that, so that it, you know, you don't, and, and I gotta say, there's also moments of leaps of faith, right? There's moments where you're like, okay, I've done this and this is the next thing. I'm not sure what, but I feel confident. But um, I guess to answer your question, I think, um, um, yeah, it was a step-by-step -step process. And like, how, how do you manage this in a way that, that 
makes sense in some ways, right? Um, I'm not sure, you know, I think there are times that I go through intense planning periods, like, like intense. And there's also the idea of like, I also just, I don't want to say I surrender to it, but I just dive into the work and like, and then I look at those, those lists, like three years later, I'm like, check, check, check. So there's something about manifestation also, like everybody manifests a different way, but for me, that form of planning, that left brain of planning is a form of manifestation. Like concrete, because you're writing it down. So you see it every day and you're kind of going in that direction. Yeah, yeah even if you're not conscious of it, it's there. Like I, I look back when I was sold my archives to uh, Emory uh, University, I looked at, I've been doing this since I was like in my early 20s. Um, and I wrote down like back then when there was still like a typewriter and I wrote down like, Publish a book of poetry, like goals. Publish a book of poetry. Uh, have own a house in New England. Uh, find the love of my life. And when I found this old, gosh, it must have been like 30 years old. And I found it when I was looking through all my papers. And it was like, check, check. But I never read it again. So, so it's kind of this weird balance for me. It's like you tense of like purpose setting, intention, manifesting and then also embracing that moment and saying, you know what, I, I, I've set my sail. I've set my ship in this direction. It might go a little this way. It might go a little bit that way, but it's in me now. And, and the act of writing actually is very important. Like you mentioned, because the writing connects it to our subconscious. Okay. So I want to ask you another question and then I want to, I want you to read one of your poems. Um, so the other thing that I think you've been very clear about is what is your voice? Like, what is it that you, you, you know, I don't think people realize whether it's a business or it's art. If you don't have a clear definition of what is the mission of your business, what is it that you do different than other people? Or as an artist, if you're a singer, or if you're an actor, or if you're a poet, if you don't have a clear voice that when I hear, right, and for you, you have chosen very specific subject matter to deep dive into. Can you talk about that? Yes, I, it, I think I've always related this to writing, but I, I, in conversations with you and right now, I think it, it, it relates to anything you want to do in life. I always tell my students, follow your obsessions. Your obsessions are the key to, to success in some ways. What is it? What is that one thing that will keep you, will keep you learning, will keep you uh, interested, will keep you excited? And it's not about finding an answer necessarily, right? It's just something that you are constantly sort of, it's just part of you. And for me, that question comes down to the sense of home, belonging, identity. And of course, for me, I think that happened when I was, before I was even born, as you know, it's like I was, I'd like to say I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain and imported to the United States. So my mom leaves Cuba seven months pregnant. I'm born in Madrid, 45 days after my birth, we emigrate once again. So by the time I was 45 days old, these ideas of question or this question of home and whatnot just already was taking hold of me in my subconscious. So I tell people to follow follow their obsessions. There's, there's a motto I live by is um, it's uh, do the work, expect great things and have fun. Because <laughs> if you're not having fun, 
that means you're not on your obsession. The obsessions should be fun. They should be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm learning this. So, so my, my whole thing has always been, and it's inexhaustible. Like every time I think I've written the lot, the, the last poem about belonging or home or identity, something else surfaces in my life. It's a lifeline assignment. And it, and it just, the work gets even more work and it's just, it, it just keeps on rolling. So, yeah. Okay. I think it's time to hear mother country. Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. The White House asked me to write three poems for the inauguration. This is the third poem. I read the second poem. They chose the second poem. Obama actually chose the second poem. This one was a little more autobiographical, so I realized why. But I, I personally think it's maybe even the better poem. <laughs> okay, But here it is. Mother country or madre patria. To love a country as if we've lost one. 1968, my mother leaves Cuba for America, a scene I imagine as is standing in her place. One foot inside a plane destined for a country she knew only as a name, a color on a map, or glossy photos from drugstore magazines. Her other foot anchored to the platform of her patria. Her hand clutched around one suitcase, taking only what she needs most. Hand-colored photographs of her family, her wedding veil, the doorknob of her house, a jar of dirt from her backyard, goodbye letters she won't open for years. The sorrowful drone of engines, one last deep breath of familiar air she'll take with her. One last glimpse at all she'd ever know. The palm trees wave goodbye as she steps onto the plane. The mountains shrink from her eyes as she lifts off into another life to love a country. As if we've lost one. I hear her once upon a time reading picture books over my shoulder at bedtime, both of us learning English, sounding out words as strange as the talking animals and fair-haired princes in their pages. I taste her first attempts at macaroni and cheese, but with chorizo and peppers, and her shame over Thanksgiving turkeys, always dry, but countered by her perfect pot and garlic yuca. I smell, I smell the rain of those mornings huddled as one, under one umbrella, waiting for the bus to her 10-hour days at the cash register. And at night, the zzz, of her sewing her own blouses and quinceanera dresses for her grown nieces still in Cuba, guessing at their sizes. And the gowns she sells to neighbors to save for a rusty white sedan, no hubcaps, no air conditioning, sweating all the way to our first vacation to Florida theme parks to love a country as if you've lost one, as if it were you on a plane departing from America forever. Clouds closing like curtains on your country, the last scene in which you're a madman scribbling down the names of your favorite flowers, trees, and birds 
you'd never see again. Your address and phone number you'd never use again. The color of your father's eyes and your mother's hair, terrified you could someday somehow forget these. To love a country as if I was my mother. Last spring, hobbling, insisting I help her climb all the way up to the U.S. Capitol as if she were here before you today instead of me, explaining her tears, her cheeks pink as the cherry blossoms coloring the air that day when she stopped, turned to me and said, you know, mijo, it isn't where you're born that matters. It's where you choose to die. That, that's your country. That is so deep and painful and beautiful. Thank you so much for reading. See, now we know, well, now we know what, what I wasn't saying is you also just have to have talent. You have to have talent to, to do these things. And also talent and mastery takes a long time, right? Yes. Yes. A combination of talent, and then you have to do a lot. <laughs> Can you explain to us in the 20 years that we, since you and I saw each other and you had published that first book to now, what is the trajectory of a poet while you're being an engineer? Do you teach? Do you then publish? Like, what's the trajectory to get you to be in that inauguration? So, part of it is. Um, obviously trying to publish books, right? Um, that, um, well, again, engineer by day, poet by night, right? Like working your plot off, uh, you know, every every uh, waking hour that you can uh, and writing, the, producing the best work you can. And then there comes a practical matter. Okay, that's all great, but then really, of more spreadsheets, like contests that I entered when I sent them, like what happened and like, and like just keeping track and just being in the game, right? Like, cause the next, the first book has to get published and then the second and the third and the fourth with each one, you get more accolades, you get more of a, you get more readership, you get more, um, the port its own slice. It's a very thin slice of that readership, but still you like stick in the game and, um, and you continue to try to produce, challenge yourself to write even better poems, better work. Uh, so it's something that um, I've, I've termed, or maybe I borrowed this term from, but again, people think that right artists don't have a business sense. Like I call it po biz. Because <laughs> <laughs> one thing is writing the poem. I mean, and that's a whole other world for me. Like, and especially now that I'm Richard Blanco, right? I mean, there's like eight hours of po biz and like four hours of writing, but like poetry, the business of poetry is not my my day job, so to speak. But there are, you know, there's there's moments of creativity, always trying to create the best work, always trying to um, improve upon your, hone your skills, right? Um, it, and it, you know, it's practice. It's like everything in life, you know, whether you're a musician or a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse, to continuously challenge yourself. Um, remember, the, the, it was this idea of like completely going for what's more difficult the next time. You know, I learned this much. So, so yeah, trying to produce your best work, getting out there, getting the books published, um, and a belief that something big will happen, right? Because in many fields, but perhaps especially poetry, I remember having this conversation with myself. I almost quit poetry once, um, actually about 
three months before the White House called. That's <laughs> <laughs> good for people to hear. What's that? It's <laughs> good for people to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I had a moment, you know, we all have the dark night of the soul where I was like, you know what? Here's my fourth book of poetry. Yes, I've gotten better and more, more, you know, more accolades, more well-known, but why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. I don't need to do this, right? I mean, I have a pretty charmed life. I have a husband, we have a great house in Maine, you know, like, and it was my recommitment. This is where I was telling you earlier about this recommitment. I was like, you know what, Richard, because I talked to myself like that. <laughs> Actually, I'm a little Ricky, um, but <laughs> I love doing this stuff. And why would I stop? And I'm just going to have faith that, and I didn't dream that big. I just said, what if I could be like Sandra, you know, like, and just do, earn a part-time living, doing readings, uh, workshops. And I imagine that what, you know, what, just that simple, what if, what if, what is my good day as a poet? And I just recommitted to, to the, to my craft, my dream, um, and opened up, um, Dolly Parton was very influential in that interview with Dolly Parton, which is like amazing. But, and another door opened, right? Um, and I think we go through those moments. I think that's perfectly natural, right? Like you have, you have like, you know, times in your life where you have to reevaluate. That wasn't even the first time. That was the second time. So, and look what incredible door opened. So, but anyway, what I was saying is like, as a poet, you mostly wait for something big to happen because you know that it has, you know, Pulitzer Prize, uh, National Book Award, uh, Nobel Prize. And Being the poet laureate of Miami Dade, which has never happened before. And I, as I looked back to those lists, remember, uh, um, uh, I wrote down one. Uh, one of my goals was to win a major prize, right? I had no idea that would be the prize. <laughs> Because in some ways, for my personal sense of what I want poetry to do in the world, to me, being a presidential inaugural poet is even more important than a Pulitzer Prize because it's such a public moment for poetry. And I get to do more things in my life with poetry, for poetry, for people. There's a giving back that that allows me to do so. But I didn't know exactly, like, you know, sometimes <laughs> there's there's a there's someone I'd listen to that says like, sometimes don't be too specific. <laughs> or if you're specific about say always in you, when you manifest or something better. I just want to have a major something happen. And there it was. Another one was, um, I said, I want to, I want to be a poet, poet of the people. I don't even know where that came from. But I felt it somehow, like, because, again, with the immigrant background and uh, not having access to poetry or the humanities, I always wanted to go back and, like, make people connect with the arts in the ways that I could do so, so, yeah, you just manifestation, doing the work, doing a little planning, having a moment of also inventory and, like, reassessment um, and just like believing that something, you know, something will happen. I, I also think that, you know, you were just talking about this voice and the homeland, but also you have really been able to write poems that can affect sort of society. So in terms of your sexuality, you have another poem that I would love for you to read. 
um, that is about gay marriage. And you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Yeah. So um, this was post the inauguration. And so it was an interesting project that was uh, uh, Freedom to Marry, which which was the organization that was really pivotal in in turning the tide with marriage equality. It was their 10 year anniversary. And they asked me to write a poem that they would turn into a short film um, by uh, director Peter Spears, who's now actually won an Academy Award now. Um, not for my film, but um, but it was a really interesting assignment because I'd never written a poem that I knew was going to be a film. But um, it's obviously autobiographical, somewhat pretty autobiographical with my present husband, Mark. And by the way, we just got married about a month ago. So, like, um, so, um, but um, I think it's important for everybody to hear. I mean, some some of the people listening are Latinas, but some are not. That being gay in in a Latino family, particularly a Cuban family, was not something that was so easy to come out or do any of. I mean, you have to sort of preface that that, you know, even for you to come out was a to do. Yeah, and to this day, believe it or not, I'm still not struggling, but it's still it's still a source of tension, and it and it's partly something cultural that's just not understood. Right? Um, it's all about maintaining pretense but um there's a we're certainly not episcopalians (laughs) (laughs) right um so um yeah so the poem um but this is what we were saying about doing something larger than yourself the inauguration this whole the latest book which is how to love a country because of that public moment made me opened a new door about things that I could write about that were not just the poetry of me, but the poetry of we that connected to issues that I had, but also the issues that many people in our country were having dreams and hopes and struggles. Um, And um, it taught me a different way how to write yet. It's still the same obsession, belonging, home, identity. Right. So yeah, this is, uh, this is the poem. (laughs) I love this poem. until we could. I knew it then, when we first found our eyes in our eyes and everything around us, even the din and smoke of the city disappeared, leaving us alone as if we were the only two men in the world, two mirrors face to face, my reflection in yours, yours in mine, infinite. I knew since I knew you, but we couldn't. I caught the sunlight pining through shears, traveling millions of dark miles simply to graze your skin, as I did that first dawn I studied you sleeping beside me. Yes, I counted your eyelashes. Yes, read your dreams like butterflies flitting under your eyelids and ready to flutter into the room. Yes, I praised you like a majestic creature my God forgot to create until that morning of you tamed in my arms, ready for me to name you mine. Yes, to the rise and fall of your body, your every exhale and inhale, a breath I breathed as my own, wanting to keep even the breath between us as one. Yes, to all of you. Yes, I knew, but still, We couldn't. I taught you how to dance salsa by looking into my Caribbean eyes. You learned to speak 
in my Spanish tongue, while teaching me how to catch snowflakes in my palms and love the great clouds of your worn-out hometown. Our years began collecting in glossy photos, timelining our lives across shelves and walls, glancing back at us, us, embracing in some sunset, more captivated by each other than the sky blushed plum rose, us claiming some mountain that didn't matter as much as our climbing it together. Us leaning against columns of ruins as ancient as our love was new, or leaning into our dreams at a table, flickering candlelight in our full mooned eyes. I knew me as much as I knew us, and yet we couldn't. Though I forgave your blue eyes turning green each time you lied and kept believing you. Though we managed to say good morning after muted nights in the same bed. Though every door slam taught me to hold on by letting us go and saying you're right became as right as saying I'm right. So there was nothing a long walk couldn't solve. Holding hands and hope under street lights, lustering like pearls, guiding us home, or a stroll along the beach with our dog. The sea washed out by our smiles, our laughter roaring louder than waves, though we understood our love was the same as our parents, though we dared to tell them so, and they understood that we knew we couldn't. No one could. When fiery kick lines and fires were set for us by our founding mother fathers at Stonewall, we first spoke of defiance. When we paraded glitter, leather, and rainbows, our word then became pride down city streets demanding, just let us be. But that wasn't enough. Parades became rallies, bold words on signs shouting until we all claimed freedom as another word for marriage and said, let us in. Insisted, love is love. Proclaimed it into all eyes that would listen at any door that would open, until no's and maybes turned into yeses, town by town, city by city, state by state, understanding us and all those who dared to say enough until the gravel struck into law what we always knew. Love is the right to say, I do, I do. And I do want us to see every tulip we've planted come up spring after spring. I do a hundred more years of dinners cooked over a shared glass of wine. I do a thousand more movies in bed. I do until our eyes become voices speaking without speaking until like a cloud meshed into a cloud, there's no more you, me, our names useless. I do want you to be the last face I see, your breath, my last. I do, I do, and will, and will, for those who still can't vow it yet, but know love's exact reason. As much as they know how a sail keeps the wind without breaking, or how roots dig away into the earth, or how the stars open their eyes into the night, or how a vine becomes one with the wall it loves, or how 
when I hold you, you are still rain in my hands. Wow, that's a wow. That's so beautiful. Love is love. (laughs) Beautiful. It's beautiful. So because we're running out of time, even though I could talk to you for three hours, and I want you to read the last poem. For, the, for everyone listening, what, how would you, what would you say, like, what do you now know that you wish you could tell your younger self and you can tell others? How can you live in this life and do what you love and still be a responsible person that makes money and isn't in an entitled, as I say, as we say in Spanish, compajaritos en la cabeza, thinking that <laughs> you know, magic is going to happen, that it really doesn't happen that way, that it really is step by step. What would you say to us? I think dreams take work, but it's happy work, right? Like, that's one thing I, I you know, I also had sometimes had pajaritos in my head too, right? But then dreams take happy work. It's fun. Like I said, have fun with what you're doing. And the other thing is, I think, in particular with an artist, never feel like you're a sellout for anything that you do. That every, every, everything that you learn in life, where, where your day job and your side hustle, it's all going to come together. Everything that you learn, every experience, whether you're feeling this is not, you're not on track or like, and you may not be, but you're going to take something from everything that you learn in life. And it's all going to add up to something, Richard, little Ricky. It all will add up. Even as I always like to say, I realize I'm a better engineer because I'm a poet and a better poet because I'm an engineer. Like those worlds all eventually merge. We can't get into that story right now. But just that every, like value every experience and and know that it's all going to support whatever whatever that obsession, that dream that you have. And But it takes work. It takes work. And sometimes, again, the practical choice doesn't mean that you're a sellout. You do. You got to hustle what you got to hustle to make happen, to make your dreams happen. And to expect big things, you said, but also uh, know that it takes time and that it that the, this is a, a journey of mastery, because that's what I'm hearing from you, that it's it's not that it happened overnight. Right. It happened overnight to the world where we see you. Right. We only many, many years. Yeah, you only see the final effect, right? You only see, I call it the Oprah effect. You don't you don't see the early Oprah when she's doing like some show somewhere in Chicago, right? We only see the end. And that's really particularly uh, a little, um, you know, problematic in America, especially. We only see the big shiny star. We don't realize, oh, we don't always talk about the stories that took there. But yeah, motto is like, do the work, <laughs> expect great things, <laughs> and have fun. <laughs> So lead us out with this next poem. What is this poem about? So I think it's this next poem is it's a brand new poem. So I'm just just sharing it with your audience for the first time. Uh, So I don't know how to read it as dramatically, perhaps. I haven't practiced. I haven't read it that much. But it's really about when I say do the work, the work can bring us down too, right? Like sometimes, or we're working, 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 working. And sometimes we're working and then we lose sight of things. And sometimes you just need to reset and have self-care and like just realize okay um this is this is let me let me reevaluate you know let me think about it and this is a poem about that it's also about letting go of some of the junk you got to let go of your life to to be able to to keep on hustling that dream right um because some things can weigh us down including our histories um they can be helpful but they can also bring us down so and it's um yeah um 
that's what it is. And I, um, I was having a bad, I, I've been working like nonstop for like 18,000 months. And like, I just, it took me three days of, to be able to like, like calm down. And I wrote this poem while I was at the beach or when I went to the beach. Why I needed to. Because I faithfully reply to every email from the absurd gods of urgency who punish my good deeds by leaving me empty when I empty my inbox. <laughs> because I praise hating myself, broken into my calendar's time-slotted tasks, slicing me thin with the thick duty of being everything, yet nothing to anyone, not even to myself. Because I remember birthdays, but sometimes forget my own and my mother's. Because she is bitter sweet as the Cuban coffee she brews after Sunday dinners, because she only loves me the language of her cooking, my favorite dish, shrimp and chilabo. Because of my bland father sunk in his armchair without me on his lap, because he never told me the life story I only read finally in the half moon of his eyes, the morning he gazed into mine, then died. Because my brother and I need to drink to share our shared hurt at happy hour. So unhappily grateful for love's wonderful wreckage. Because my husband, who's, who is still scared of his adoration for me as we embrace sleep, still doubts how long I'll nest my dreams in his arms. Because I never quite told him. Always. Because I'm just as afraid of needing him more than I need myself. Because I am not the one I've curated on Instagram. Oh, so humbled by, oh, so grateful for so many posted blessings and my posed selves. Because tonight, I again remember I'm nothing more than a mirage slowly disappearing on my porch, sitting with half the life I have left, still trying to piece how I fit into the puzzle of the constellations. Because I've drank their shots of light and one too many martinis tonight because I'm cheering mindlessly to the moon to my wish for immortality amid the clouds of my own cigarettes. Because I should finally quit doubting myself and my life will there more than be anonymous bones because I need to believe in something else truer than me because that's why today I had to take myself away to the beach because I needed to imagine my father as that father at the shore handing a bouquet of seashells to his son. Because I needed to taste that love can be as simple as a mother who remembered to pack sodas and sandwiches. Because I needed the seagulls tending the horizon to teach me again to be as still as them, peer calmly into the void of the skies I face, because I needed to hear the waves break, break, and break into the lines of this poem, because I needed to burn, to see myself shine just as beautifully as the rosy glow of the sunlight bathing my closed eyes. What a way to end, Richard. Thank you, Richard Blanco. I'm, I hope you now have all fallen in love as I have. 
<laughs> and I look forward to many more conversations and great times with you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for thank you for inviting me, and thank you everyone for listening. And gosh, yes, just moment of gratitude right now. This feels like we're like just totally live right now. I can I feel know. it already out there. And, and go to Richard's website, Richard Blanco. It's amazing. It's beautiful, first of all, and. As you can see, I mean, you just have such a beautiful gift. I know it took a lot, and, and I know it's very disciplined, but it is in in full glory. And it's thank you for sharing it with us. Also, the dream. <laughs> thank you, Doug. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Money Maker is a production of Money News Network. Money Maker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.